to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, a different perspective on the Veterinary Nurse Initiative and medical marijuana usage in pets. You do not want to miss this exciting conversation. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we've got a person who is tackling some of the toughest topics in the world. I can't wait to talk to her. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And I'm so excited. We have an amazing veterinary technician joining us today, bright and early from the West Coast. Ms. Liz Houston is a veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care, as well as small animal internal medicine. She started her own relief business uh, called the Vet Tech Expert, and she's co-founder of the Veterinary Cannabis Academy with our old friend, Stephen Sital. We are so excited you're here this morning, Miss Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, Liz, we are really, really thrilled to have you because not only are you a leader and a pioneer in the veterinary technician profession, but you are a leading spokesperson for a lot of topics that are, let's just say, quite controversial at the moment. <laughs> and, and before we jump into all of that goodness, I just would like a, a quick little backgrounder on you. I mean, like, how did you get here? Because I know you have an interesting background and I'm a big fan of yours, but explain to me how you got to here today. Well, wow, that's a kind of a big topic. I, uh, I, this is my uh, second career. So I started out as a English major and a and an English teacher as I graduated from graduate school from UCLA, and that was a long time ago, more years ago than I'd like to say. Uh, and I worked in the corporate world for a period of time, and then I adopted a dog. And when I took some time off from my corporate job, I wanted to give back. I volunteered at a humane society and I saw a woman there with a RVT uh, name tag. And I said, what is that? What's an RVT? And she told me and she told me there was a school nearby. And I went home that night and applied. And I haven't looked back since that day. And I graduated from tech school and 2006 um, and then became credentialed in my specialties in 2012. So I worked at a large specialty hospital, uh, excuse me, a large emergency and and um, general practice in um, Los Altos, California. Uh, they practice almost specialty level medicine. It's a pretty impressive place. I worked there for nine years and uh, became credentialed as a specialist and started speaking. And that has really been the really... Uh, amazing thing for me is to be able to give back to my profession by speaking and educating other technicians. So you're saying you got two VTSs at the same time? I did. I don't wow. recommend it. <laughs> how did that even work, Liz? Like, how did you actually accomplish that? Well, the nice thing or the insane thing about internal medicine and emergency and critical care is there is some overlap in the skills. So uh, so I was able to master the skills needed um, by working in an ER and an ICU uh, and doing some of the IM type 
work that we did at that practice. We had ultrasound, we had endoscopy, um, we did a lot of uh, of medicine there, treating you know treating uh, diseases like Addison's and Cushing's and th- those types of things. So I had a lot of exposure and experience with it. And since the skills overlapped, uh, I was able and the the skills overlapped and the application year is slightly offset. Um, So I was, yeah, I was able to do both. Yeah. And you've really done a lot. I mean, you know, you've, you've worked on a lot of different species. You've worked in settings, not only at very advanced care, but emergency care, surgical care. I mean, you know, Liz, you, it's quite an impressive bio. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you first came to my attention with something that I I really want to start this conversation off, and that is when you started talking about the importance of unionization of veterinary technicians and veterinary staff. Explain to us how you came up with that and tell us a little bit about what, you know, what's happening with that. Well, around February of last year, a friend of mine in an LVT in Washington, uh, decided that she had had enough and um, she had had a terrible experience with her employer and she looked at it and thought I could sue my employer and she certainly had grounds to do that but she thought that it would be better if she could help more people than just herself and so she kind of started it almost as on a whim Um, but as soon as I heard about it I was like no we have to do this this is something important Um, this is something that we really need we need uh, our profession to have a voice we need collective bargaining we need to be able to stand up to large corporations uh, who are now really consolidating the veterinary industry mm-hmm. and I felt really strongly about it and c- kind of came on board with her and since that time we have we started a Facebook group uh, where we have about t- 2,000 people in that group um, and very excitingly uh, we actually just partnered what were or affiliated is the technical term with the international longshore and warehouse union so they're going to help us with our organizing efforts as we go forward and they have um, filed for an election for a practice in san francisco so we're super excited there's uh it's it's really happening (laughs) And, and Liz, maybe for our listeners, because I think that there's a lot of myths and misperceptions around the term union and unionization. Maybe explain for the audience today a little bit about what you're actually trying to accomplish and, and how do these terms and, and, and these types of organizations apply to the veterinary profession? Yeah, that, I think, thank you. Uh, the union, what we're after, what, it, what any union is after is change in the workplace. And for us in the veterinary profession, what we want and, and our union, particularly what we're focused on is uh, workplace safety, improvements in workplace safety, which is a huge issue for veterinary staff members, when it, whether it comes to adequate staffing or um, properly trained people in restraint or the proper use of PPE and the available of PPE. Personal protective equipment. Uh, so that's a big issue for us. Um, another big issue for us is reducing bullying in the workplace. Um, yeah, so professional here. respect issues. And I think that that goes to the overall mental state of 
veterinary professionals. Um, the We get enough bullying sometimes from our clients, uh, and then for us to do it to ourselves is, is uh, <laughs> very disheartening. Um, so that's another big focus of the union. And of course, increasing benefits and pay uh, so that we can um, help improve the lives and make this a sustainable profession for the staff members particularly. And Liz, let me jump in there because I think that's where the biggest pushback comes because everybody, when they hear unionization, they think, oh, you're just trying to get more money. But let's be clear to the audience today. We're not just talking about wages and benefits. We're actually talking about working conditions. That is exactly right, Dr. Ward. That's exactly what we're talking about. And the money actually is secondary to it. We know from studies that NAVDA has conducted, for example, that the average lifespan of a technician in this profession is five to seven years. And that's just not a sustainable profession for us. And part of that is workplace issues. A lot of it is pay and benefits. And I think the focus that you talked about, about bullying and the emotional respect and making an emotionally healthy workplace is so important. And um, I do some work as the jerk researcher on finding some of that research in the human medical field and seeing how much that impacts not only the quality of life of the people in the profession, but also the safety of our patients. When we have more bullying, we see a decreased patient outcomes, increased patient mortality. It's obviously um, in nursing, in human nursing, there seems to be about 26% of nurses have had something physically thrown at them by a physician. So I think this is something (laughs) where we got to realize it's it's a win-win for everyone because if we have emotionally healthier workplaces, that benefits veterinary technicians, but it also benefits everybody else in the workplace too because we're breaking these cycles of negativity. So Liz, what is the status right now? Like what are the next steps? How do you see this thing moving forward? I mean, how can people get involved? Yeah, so we have a Facebook group that is limited to non-supervisory, non-management members of uh, the veterinary team. And that's a good, that's where we kind of have a warehouse of information. Although um, we have been having to keep a little bit of that information uh, on the down low because we have already seen pushback. And let's, I also want to be clear here that we're not talking about unionizing sole practitioners or small practices. Right. That's just right. not what a union, it, the people that work in those practices can have a voice in those practices already. They generally have good relationships with the with the doctor um, or the or the owner, whoever the owner may be, and that's not really a target of unionization. What we're talking about is these large corporations who are coming in um, and really starting to consolidate the industry. And those are the places where people working on the floor start to feel powerless, and they start to feel like they don't have a voice in what happens in their practice. So what we want to do is give people that voice. So. If people are interested, probably one of the best ways to do that is actually to, (laughs) I I hate to open myself up to this, but really it's to contact me directly um, and I can point them in the right direction. A lot of it is, uh, this has to come from internally within practices um, and it is some work to make it happen, um, but we have tools to help people uh, create change in their practice. Yeah, and I really do encourage you out there if you're feeling alone or if you're feeling like the the workplace you're in is not safe, you don't have anybody to help you, 
I really do. Um, or even if you just want more information, reach out to Miss Liz. Although, sorry, <laughs> Miss Liz, you can <laughs> send me the overflow. I'll see if I can help. But I think it's really important because I talk so much about us not being a consolation prize and that we are a profession and we need to feel empowered. And I just I, I thank you for giving that outlet to so many technicians out there who don't really have anywhere else to turn. Well, and Liz, this is an, a nice pivot here because uh, obviously you've done great work and raising awareness around the importance of unionization and giving a voice to those in these large corporations that maybe feel voiceless. But at the same time, there's a big initiative going on called the Veterinary Nurse Initiative. And I'd like to get your perspective on it because I know you have you know some different opinions and maybe some different goals or objectives for that. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you you guys all here, you know, allowing me to talk about this um, because I do think it's a really important issue for our profession. Um, I am probably, I don't know if I did the math, it would be 85 or 90% in favor of everything that the VNI is doing. But I feel that focusing on the word nurse and the title nurse is actually going to hold back the other things that we want to accomplish as part of that initiative. I think it's more important that we create nationwide standards for education, for testing, for credentialing. Um, I think that's more important than the word nurse. I think we have four titles that are currently in use in the United States for credential technicians. And I think we could unite behind one of those titles and not, uh, not encounter as much resistance as we get from the human nursing side. Now, a lot of the human nurses, a lot of people on on, our, on the VNI side say the human nurses are opposed because they don't understand, but we haven't done a lot to educate them or the public or our own profession, honestly, about what our education and our testing is. And I think that uh, until we do that, I think we're, we would serve ourselves better if we united under one of the titles currently in use. I agree with you, Liz. I think that the nursing term is the is going to be the catch point for a lot of controversy. So I agree with you on that perspective, although I, I do also believe in the term nurse. But let me get back to your story, because you said something I thought that was kind of interesting, and I want to get your take on it, and how could this all work out better? You, you mentioned, you go, hey, you know, I'm taking a break from the corporate world. I go to a shelter, and I see someone with something that says RVT. And I was like, what is that? So that tells me that you had no clue that RVTs existed. Is that correct? At that that time? is absolutely correct. I had no idea. And I will tell you, I talk to people who have no idea what RVTs are. They say, or credentialed technicians, pick your first letter, honestly. Uh, I don't care if I'm an R, a C, or an L, um, (laughs) or an LVM for that matter. Um, But when I talk to people and say, oh, I'm an RVT, and they say, oh, I love all the techs at my vet's office. And I say, well, are they all techs? And then I explain to them what, what technician means. And in California, it is a protected title. So no one is supposed to use that title unless they are an actual RVT, if they are, unless they are a credentialed um, veterinary technician. So, but as we see, as we know, happens everywhere across this country, people just call themselves techs. Doctors refer to everyone on their staff as their techs, or in some cases, they are already calling them their nurses. That right. happens at the University of Pennsylvania. That happens at um, all of the Blue Pearl facilities. Uh, so they're using this term inaccurately. And what that does is it 
devalues the credential technicians that are there. Um, it makes them feel less than. It makes the assistants who work there think that it's not, there's no purpose for them to get credentialed because they're already called a tech. They're already doing what the techs are doing. So why should they even become credentialed? Right. And I agree with everything you just said. That is spot on accurate. The issue that I have around that term technician is the fact that, A, it has been dumbified. You know, it's just noise and scatter out there and everybody calls everybody else a technician. So for me, actually reinventing the language, I think is an important step because suddenly if we're now calling them veterinary nurses, it's a different signal to the marketplace. The other thing is, and again, I'd like to get your opinion on this. Don't you think that nursing has such a common definition and association for people in general that aligning ourselves with that term is beneficial? I, I do. And when they first started talking about this initiative, I was 100% behind it. I want, I, I, I want to be an RVN. I think that the issue here is, is, is a fewfold. Uh, the first is that nurse is a protected title in 39 states. Right. So we encounter big difficulties in those states. Uh, not only that, but the ANA, the American Nurses Association, is opposed to our use of the word nurse. And they will fight this. And they have already fought this in states where this has been introduced. And that means more time, more money, and it endangers the rest of the initiative. And that, for me, is the biggest concern. Yeah, um, yeah nurse. And the reason that nurse is so well known and well-respected is because nurses have done hundreds, literally hundreds of years of public education about their title. And we, to be honest, our national organization has dropped the ball. We don't do public education. We don't even do professional education about this. The AVMA doesn't stand behind it. They don't insist on title protection. Uh, They allow their member veterinarians to call their staff whatever they like. And in most states, that's the case. And our national organization doesn't do anything on that front either. That's why technician has been diluted. It's been allowed to be diluted over, over time. Yeah, and that's really what I appreciate about you, Liz, is, I mean, that's a very cogent, you know, thoughtful response. Um, it's very civil. I mean, you're just awesome on so many levels. And I think it's important for listeners today that, you know, you need to start to think about this more carefully. It's not just as simple as sometimes we make it out to be. Uh, there's a lot more nuance and complexities to this issue. And so, again, Liz is out there, you know, she's saying, look, I agree with the vast majority, 85, 90% of what you guys are trying to do here. I think that the sticking point is going to be the term nurse and maybe we should get creative around that. And I just want to make sure that I'm on the the same page. So some of the feedback I had been hearing was that there was less resistance in the nursing community to us using that term once they were educated on, you know, what veterinary technicians were doing. So I'm hearing that the opposite is true, that the the nursing community as a whole is really opposed to us using this because I was under the understanding that if we had it as veterinary nurse, that there wasn't the same resistance. I think individual nurses, when you talk to individual nurses and you tell them what is involved in our training and education, they they say, yeah, you guys are nurses. You should be nurses. But the ANA, the, the national organization, as early as or as late as November of last year, has written a letter of opposition to the use of the term nurse. And they will they will mobilize their constituencies to uh, to fight this wherever it's introduced. 
And I think the biggest takeaway, I don't know, what I love about this conversation really is the importance of being really well-informed in what's going on. You know, we hear so much that just kind of wraps into the background noise of either we do more than nurses, which is, I don't know how you feel about that, Miss Liz, but it just kind of drives me crazy to hear I that. Hate that. Yeah, right? Because it's so disrespectful to the nursing field. And so instead of getting wrapped up in the noise, like think about what your priorities are and really look at the root of the issue. And and while there is different opinions on, on both sides, when they come from a really educated standpoint, we're doing the right thing for our profession. So Liz, I'd like to, to slightly pivot this because what I'm also hearing clearly and loudly in my 25 years as a, as a veterinarian is that change is needed. <laughs> change has to happen. For and sure. so you're, you're tackling it from two different perspectives, which is really commendable. And the first, of course, is this whole V&I and you know, you've got your spin on it and, and we'll kind of park that away. But then you've got this other thing where you're saying, look, okay, we think that collective bargaining is also essential to the future of our profession. Now, if you had to pick one of those, what where would you land? <laughs> really? You're going to ask me to pick <laughs> between the two? Um, I think that they they almost go hand in hand. Uh, in, in the NVP, the National Veterinary Professionals Union, and, you know, we are for the entire staff. So we're for the kennel assistants, we're for the registered technicians, the credential technicians, we're for the specialty technicians, um, and we're for the assistants, whether you're 20 years in the field or two years in the field. So, you know, that that is a super inclusive group. Um, so I think that's for everyone. So, and I, and, and I think when we create change, in a veterinary hospital, that change benefits everyone. Uh, the doctors get staff that are more motivated, more committed to the practice, and more likely to stay in the practice, which means you end up with better trained staff in the long run um, who have viability and sustainability in their career, so they're not going anywhere. Um, so so I don't, I mean, that's something super important. <laughs> um right. But it's also super important that we standardize our type, that we standardize our education, yes. that we standardize our assessment requirement. So the VT is kind of what people have rallied behind, and it's fine; it's an okay test. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, but we need to standardize it because what that does is it allows people portability of their title as well. Like right now, if I move somewhere, luckily I've taken the VT &E. So in most cases, all I have to do is transfer my score and take any state exam and pay the fee, um, and I can, and I can uh, then become a credential technician in that state. Uh, but just saying that now makes me makes me think about how much that ties in with the union, particularly because in California, for example, they just doubled our fees. Wow. So wow. it costs three hundred dollars to become credentialed in California on top of the three hundred dollars you have to pay to take the VT&E. And that's something that that a union, once we get larger, um, you know, and we have a little bit more power, that's something we might be able to take on as well. Now, Liz, too, just before we leave this particular topic, where do you see veterinarians aligning with you, especially on the unionization? Like, you know, can I be a part of that? And do you see a place for veterinarians to get involved with collecting collective bargaining, especially in the corporate world? Yeah, for sure. When we started this, uh, we actually included veterinarians in our in the movement. Um but when we, when the San Francisco practice, uh, when they have, when they filed for their election, they excluded doctors. And um, 
the reason behind that was it's a little tricky with the doctors. Uh, technically, we as technicians practice under the under the veterinarian. Um, we practice at their direction, and so I think that. Um, so it became a little tricky in terms of are they managers, are they supervisors, and they those managers and supervisors need to kind of be excluded from union efforts, at least for right now, the, at the beginning stages. Those are the things that uh, corporations, that, that those opposed to the union, want to uh, pick at, uh, and that's what they'll use to try and break the union before it even starts. But we have... Um, we have options for doctors and we do believe that doctors need to participate in collective bargaining for themselves. Um, and I think that, uh, that it's really important that they do participate in it because they are in the workplace with us. Absolutely. And, um, a lot of this makes me think of a, a story I was just hearing really recently about the writer strike that occurred in, in media. Um, and the story I was listening to particularly concerned the daily show and how, you know, the, the writers and the management had had this really close relationship, but most of the writers were part of the union and, and they wanted to show solidarity, understandably, with, with the other things that were going on and they needed change in their individual business. And I think in some of those situations, and as happened in that one, it's really easy to take things very personally. And some of those relationships temporarily were, were damaged because of the strike. Um, but, and, and there seemed to have been things on both sides. Uh, for instance, the manager, uh, gave everybody kind of a payout before the strike to kind of help them through financially and didn't even get a kind of a letter saying thank you for that part. But also, um, you know, management was kind of oblivious to, to the needs of the writer. So, so there were mistakes made on both sides when something happens like this, or if people find themselves in a practice where they have good relationships, but their team is unionizing, um, what advice would you give them on the level of not taking that personally and, again, seeing that as a way to support their team? Yeah, I think that that is a huge issue. And I think we work so closely together. We work so closely with one another on in the veterinary practice, whether you're in a corporate practice or you're in a private practice with just a, you know, a couple of doctors. Um, so we do form these really close relationships. And uh, I think that the important thing to remember is that creating a union is about creating change. And, and you felt Someone might have felt powerless to create that change before, and this is allowing them the the voice that they needed to make that change happen. And it's not because they don't like the person. It's because they don't like something about the situation that they're in. And in corporate practice, a lot of that is driven by by what's coming down from above the manager that's on site. So they have to implement those practices whether they want to or not. And I will say, we have a lot of managers um, in our group when we first started this, and I've had a lot of managers reach out to me and say, we need this, my staff needs this, we want this to happen. So they are super supportive. And I think you can be supportive of yeah. your staff in these efforts. Um, and I mean, I don't know how to tell someone not to take it personally right, yeah. beyond just saying it's not a, it's not about personality. It's about policies and procedures. Yep. It's about the system. Yeah, exactly right. So, Liz, I, I know we're running short of time today, but I, I can't let you go without talking about medical marijuana, CBD usage and veterinary medicine. You are out there also at this flashpoint in our history. Tell us what's going on there and, and where you see that moving. Yeah, this is a super 
super exciting uh, time to be in veterinary medicine and in cannabis. It is, um, it's incredible what's happening right now. Uh, so cannabis is, I use the term cannabis instead of marijuana because cannabis is the name of the plant. And that's what we're talking about is a plant. Uh, it's a plant with substances that uh, have evolved within the plant that interact with a system within Every vertebrate on this planet, everything with a spine, has what is known as an endocannabinoid system. So a system that is designed to interact with substances that we create ourselves within our own bodies, dogs, cats, humans, non-human primates, rats, mice, you name it. Um, we create substances to interact with this system, and then plants make substances to also interact with this system plants like cannabis, but also plants like uh, like the black pepper tree, like lavender, like saffron, for example. Right, so right. there are tons of plants out there that make cannabinoids that interact with our endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoid system is responsible for your overall well-being. It's, it's responsible for, uh, for your ability to forget things and people think oh what's the point of you know why do I want to forget things but that's why it's possibly why it's so powerful in treating PTSD in humans and phobias in dogs and cats uh, because we can in induce a state of forgetfulness of those scary things um, but overall homeostasis the, the the system is responsible for so many things and we discover new things every day that the endocannabinoid system does and there are some researchers out there who actually call disease pretty much any disease which is gets a little starts to get a little uh, woo-woo for my taste but they say that disease is actually an endocannabinoid deficiency and yeah. so what we need to do is supplement the endocannabinoids with phytocannabinoids or synthetic cannabinoids, although some people think those don't work as well. But if we can supplement that deficiency with cannabinoids that we can provide to the system, that we can rebalance the system and we can um, maybe start eliminating disease. And I'd like to really point out to listeners who are still somewhat skeptical, as you should be, around this system. Remember, this is biological evolution at its best. It is This is a system that has been preserved in all vertebrates on the planet. And we don't preserve things evolutionarily unless it's of benefit. So the fact that we've sort of just ignored this entire neurochemical pathway for all of these decades, hundreds of years really is shocking and disappointing, but it is. It, we need to, it's now time that we take this more seriously because this is real. There is, there are scientific studies and evidence that back this up. And now it's time for us as veterinary professionals to say, okay, look, we're not saying everybody light up a bong and give it to your dog. But what we are saying is let's look at these receptors and how can we improve health by again, exploiting them. So, and I, I want to touch on something early on in this conversation because I'm super type A rule follower and I suspect some of our listeners out there are as well. And when I start getting questions from my clients about this, one of my first questions is, okay, where where are the rules here? So I do want to just um, touch on really quickly the DEA definition. And then I want to talk to you, Liz, about um, what we are and aren't allowed to talk about because um, I guess my current understanding is that even when it comes to some things like CBD oil, we, we might get ourselves into trouble. So the definition from the DEA 
is marijuana means all parts of the plant's cannabis satvia L, whether growing or not, the seeds thereof, the resin extracted from any part of the plant, and every compound, manufacturer, salt, derivative, mixture, or preparation of such plant, its seeds, or resin. But it does not include the mature stalks of such plant, fiber produced from such stalks, oil or cake made from the seeds of such plant, or any other compound, manufacturer, salt, derivative, mixture, or preparation of such mature stalks, except the resin extracted therefrom, fiber, oil, cake, or the sterilized seed of such plant, which is incapable of germination. So I know that's a mouthful. But <laughs> oh, that us- cleared everything all up. Yeah, yeah. 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 So um, why are some of us confused about, about where the lines are? I don't know. So so yeah, when we see something like, um, you know, Canacare, is that coming from the stocks? I guess I'm just really confused on what I can yeah. and can't even talk about with my clients. It's super confusing. And I think that um, in some I mean, I don't want to get in too deep into too many conspiracies, but I think they keep it confusing um, for a good reason. For sure, um, for and sure. I, it, so it is challenging. It it has become a little more complicated with the introduction of medical and recreational use laws in many states across the U.S. I think right now we're up to 29 states with eight or or nine other states pending coming this November. Um, the, the issue, though, is in those states where it is legal, so using um, cannabis medicinally and or recreationally is legal, uh, veterinarians have been left out of prescribing rights for those drugs. So um, it, it's, it is very confusing. I think what we tell owners um, is also confusing. In California, for example, the California Veterinary Medical Board has issued guidance telling uh, telling owner telling a clinic owners, veterinarians, that they risk their license if they discuss these substances with their clients, um, and uh, that just doesn't serve the clients. And that is really frustrating to me because veterinary medical boards are there for the protection of consumers. They're there for the protection of the clients and we're not doing them a service. The fact is that your clients are using these substances in their pets, whether they're telling you or not is a different issue. And we need to create an environment where they will tell us first of all, that they're using them in their pets and also where we can help them choose the safest and most efficacious products. So I'm not telling veterinarians to go out there and recommend these to every single pet. I think that um, there's so much that goes into whether you're going to do that or not. Uh, And we can certainly help you determine um, whether it's something you want to incorporate into your practice. We have the Veterinary Cannabis Academy, which Becky mentioned. It's a group on Facebook. It's only veterinary staff. It's only veterinary professionals. It's all evidence and science-based. And so we want to help you guys help guide your clients appropriately so they can do what's safe for their pets. I would like for you, if you can, and I know this is a big question that I'm going to ask you to drill down kind of quick. I think there's so much truth and myth around the use of cannabinoids um, in our patients and and what's going on. Give me the top three myths and bust them for me. 
<laughs> okay. So I would say the top, the very, very top one is that my, my, my dog will get high if I give them these products that are for veterinarians or for veterinary species for dogs and cats. Right. So I will say, and this is, goes back to something that Dr. Ward said earlier. Uh, we don't want you to shotgun your pets. So don't take <laughs> right. a hit off of something and blow it in their face. Which um, is for, happening. And yeah. there's YouTube videos of that. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. It 100% is. But we don't want you to do that for lots of reasons. First of all, that what you're generally um, ingesting or smoking or taking in any way that you're taking it usually has high levels of THC. And THC is the cannabinoid that is responsible for the psychoactivity of the plant. That's the part that makes you high. It also makes dogs and cats high. And dogs particularly have more receptors concentrated in their cerebellum. So we that's why we see the toxic signs that in dogs if they get too much THC, that they, they stand and they can't walk really well, they wobble, they dribble their urine, they get this hyperesthesia where if you get near them, they flinch away from you, um, they seem like they're afraid of light or sound. Uh, those are signs of toxicity and that's from THC. But what we use most commonly in veterinary species is CBD, which is another cannabinoid, part of the spectrum of the plant. But CBD does not create any psychoactivity. There's no high at all from CBD. Um, it, it interacts with the system to create an, a different host of effects that aren't uh, psychoactive. So that's myth number one. Um, myth number two is it's illegal and I can't, I can't use it in my pet. Uh, I would say to that, and this goes to Dr. Cindy's question, um, is it's murky. <laughs> um, and the yeah. fact is that in a lot of states it is legal. Uh, and, in, and not only that, you can buy these products on the internet and have them shipped directly to your house. So, uh, so legal, not legal. I think it's a it's a fuzzy question. I don't think I would not feel comfortable as a veterinarian, or if I owned my own practice, I would not sell these products out of my practice um, because I think it is too murky and too muddy and too risky to do that. Uh, but I don't have to because clients can buy them almost anywhere. Um, and so the legality is murky, uh, especially when it comes to CBD. The third myth, I would say, is that there's no research supporting the use of these substances in our species. And what I will say to that is that in veterinary species specifically, cats and dogs, we don't have a whole lot of research, but we have a ton of research in humans, in non-human primates, in mice and rats and other laboratory species. And uh, there is so much research out there about the benefits of these substances. Uh, it's ridiculous, honestly, to say that we don't have any science to, to back up the use of these, uh, these substances. And I want to kind of follow up on that one, because certainly the, the DEA classification of marijuana currently um, impairs our ability to do additional research, correct? Yes. And what can we do if we, we do, as an epileptic myself, um, I have not partaken of cannabis in any form at any point, but <laughs> I have clients, you know, who have pets with issues and they're really 
interested in the potential implications. And um, what if we do support changing the law so that it, it can be more easily increased or easily researched? Yes. What can we do to take action there? Oh, that's such a great question. So there are, there is actually now in Congress a, a cannabis, what do they call themselves? The Cannabis Quorum. The can <laughs> but there is a group of congressmen, a bipartisan group of congressmen who are pushing for reform of the cannabis laws. So they are moving to make it easier to perform, to do research on these substances. It has become clear that they don't belong under schedule one they don't belong under right. under the controlled substances act at least not schedule one which supposedly has no medicinal benefit whatsoever I so i think that we need to support those we need to support first of all at the state level our state laws that are changing the the laws so we need to uh work in in our own state to help uh, support any kind of change in legislation um, to make it legal medically in our own state, uh, and then work with your congressperson, with your state senators, to help support the bills as they come up for use in uh, or come up for votes in the uh, in the national legislature. And I just want to point out exactly how ridiculous it is that it has that DEA classification. So just to point out, cocaine is a Schedule Two. And as a veterinary student, I actually had a patient with severe epistaxis that our, our team prescribed cocaine, yeah. intranasal cocaine for this uh, patient. And I was sure. the most terrified yeah. vet student you have ever seen in your life because I was like, some of this is going to go missing. I am never going to become a veterinarian. This is going to be awful. <laughs> but but just to point out the fact that, you know, we, we don't think that there are significant side effects for this. And uh, yet it's in a totally different classification. Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And Cindy, the joke that is because this has been used cocaine, particularly in epistaxis in horses, as anybody in the equine world knows, uh, <laughs> is that it's a lot easier to get your horse a bag of cocaine than a bag of pot. Yeah, Crazy. I just want to I also want to point out that the patient started feeling a lot better. And I was like, oh, gosh, <laughs> the anemia must be getting better. And my my intern had to point out uh the patient is high. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah. Oh, I guess that would be why they felt a lot better. <laughs> Well, we are high on this conversation. It could go on and on and on. Oh Liz, I want to thank you so much for your time and energy today and talking about these really thorny issues. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like we just scratched the surface yes. of those yeah. thorns. So, well, But I really appreciate you having me on to do that. We need a sequel. Well, for, <laughs> right. For people that want to scratch a little further, where can they find out more? Yes, the Veterinary Cannabis Academy on Facebook. So if you search on Facebook, Veterinary Cannabis Academy, you will find us. Um, so I would say that would be the first place to go if you're interested in learning more about cannabis use in pets and how to help your clients use it safely. Uh, if you want to know more about the union, you can. Uh, we have a Facebook page, the National Veterinary Professionals Union. So you can go there and uh, like and follow that page for more information on that. And of course, on the VNI, NAVDA has a whole section of their website devoted to the VNI. Um, for the alternate perspective of the VNI, you can uh, read my Facebook feed <laughs> or reach out to me directly um, to talk about the issues involved. I'm happy to talk about this. Well, you heard what we have to say and what Liz has to say. We want to hear from you. What do you think about the Veterinary Nurse Initiative, unionization, CBD usage in veterinary patients? We want to hear from you. 
I forecast that we're going to have some really interesting conversations on our Facebook page or on Instagram, although I don't know what kind of pictures you want to send us. Maybe be a little careful there. Um, at Veterinary Viewfinder and find us on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder. We'd also love to hear a review from you, especially on iTunes. I think this is a five-star podcast, honestly. Absolutely. So uh, make sure to catch us there. It is sky high. And, <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time, keep that water boiling. Bye. 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 I don't even know what you're talking about, Ernie. That's how <laughs> the goody two-shoes I have. That's a hookah, right? <laughs> that, has, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> it's a hookah. You're absolutely right. Okay, exactly. okay, good. I'm making tea. Making I'm tea. Making yes. tea. <laughs> yes. Chamomile. All right. Um, I want to give a shout out to Kelsey Carpenter. Does ah. everybody know this song? My doggy. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, that's such a good song. Thank you, Kelsey. We